Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I, once again, am Rafi Salazar, your host from Rehab U Practice Solutions. Glad you're here. Glad you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with us as we dive into topics and conversations that are really all about helping us understand as clinicians um, how we can make better decisions for our patients as business owners, administrators, or clinic directors, how we can inform policy and procedure so that we are able to deliver still highly efficient, highly effective care to our patients while maintaining the understanding that each patient that we see is a uh, deeply unique individual on their own unique road to recovery. So with that topic in mind, let's talk a little bit about what we've got on the docket for today. So I sat down with Dr. Ian Harris. He's an orthopedic surgeon out of Australia, and he wrote a book that was published back in 2016 called Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo. And in by the time I was reading it, I was a consultant. I was doing a lot of other things in academia. I was teaching evidence-based practice. And it was a very interesting book because he not only talks about evidence in orthopedic surgery and how some of the, the surgeries that are being completed and are still being done today really have little evidence backing them and supporting their continued use, yet we still do it because it's best practice or, or standard practice. But he also spends a little bit of time in the book, one, discussing what placebo is. I've recommended this book to a few clinicians and uh, other fellow academics when I was a, a, in, the, in the college space, simply because it was a very good, concise explanation of what a placebo is and our understanding of placebo versus placebo effect and that sort of thing. And then in the book, he also talks about the why, why people and clinicians and administrators and even payers will continue to fund, choose, select, perform treatments and interventions that we know, according to the literature, when they're tested against randomized, blind, placebo-controlled trials, perform poorly or show very little efficacy. He talks about, in the book, why that continues to be the case, some of the cognitive biases that keep clinicians and administrators and payers coming back to these uh, standardized or, or standard practice, if you would. So I had a really good time talking with him about the subject, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you like what we're doing, you can head on over to iTunes, give us a rating and review, but I'll tell you that at the end of the show too. So without further ado, here's Dr. Ian Harris talking about his book, uh, Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo. Hey, Dr. Harris, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me. All right. So for those that might not know you, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, we'll talk about the book, obviously, but uh, what got you into the idea of studying placebo and, and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, I'll try and keep it short because it's a long story. Um, <laughs> I'm an orthopedic surgeon in practice in uh, Sydney in Australia, um, been practicing for, for a long time. I started my career like everybody else, just operating, doing all the operations that everyone else was doing. Um, but I always wanted to get into the academic side of it, the, the research side of it, look for the evidence for what we do. And when I started doing that, I found that the evidence for what we do really wasn't very good and it wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was. And this is not isolated to orthopedic surgery. This is something that, that is pretty pervasive. So then I took an academic turn. Uh, I still practice orthopedics clinically. I work at a big hospital, but um, I do mainly research now. So I did a, a master's in uh, clinical epidemiology and a PhD, and now I do research into surgical effectiveness. Um, and it's just, it, it, it astounds me that um, a lot of what we do isn't well supported and a lot of what we do has been studied and shown not to be effective, and yet we're still doing it. Exactly, yeah. And you mentioned that in the book, too. You talk about some of the reasons why people keep on doing this, right? Which I guess brings us to the book. So you wrote the book, Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo. And in a nutshell, kind of what's the, what's the idea behind the book? Because the, the title is very compelling. <laughs> well, um, yeah, the idea behind the book is that um, we need to be more scientific in judging the effectiveness of things we do. Because if we leave it to ourselves and just chatting with the patient, how are you feeling? Yeah, not bad. Um, uh, yeah, I think these operations work pretty well. That kind of judgment, um, experience, uh, tradition, uh, like, ah, I kind of do this operation because the guy I used to work with, he used to do it all the time and he was happy with it. That kind of evidence, which has driven medicine for thousands of years, um, is, is very bad and very often wrong. And we need to acknowledge it and we need to change it. And so I wrote the book to kind of get the message out there because for some time I've been, you know, lecturing and writing and telling people that, hey, we need to do a little better here. A lot of the stuff we do doesn't work. Um, but I need to, I wanted to get the message broader to a general audience and just say, this is not the way we should be doing things. Um, and a lot of it is, yeah, fighting this, this uh, really firmly held belief. It's, a, it's amazing how strongly people can, can hold on to their convictions, their beliefs. And, and it's interesting, uh, there's, there's quotes around by people over the years, you know, the more firmly somebody believes something, probably the less likely it is to be true. It's, it's, yeah. very, uh, it's, it's very strange. But, but the reasons why are all understandable. The reasons why surgeons think that their operation works is, is completely understandable in, a, in the context of how humans' are, brains work, you know, um, but not understandable when you look at it scientifically. And the problem is that humans aren't natural scientists. We're natural humans, uh, not natural scientists. Yeah, evolution has, has created us basically. And you, you mentioned this in the book, like it happened after something so that it must be attributed to that something, right? Yeah, and that's what like drives the, a lot of that. This is the number one logical fallacy that we fall for, which is, uh, yeah, 
post hoc ergo propter hoc, which means it, it follows, therefore it is because of. And that's, a, a, yeah, evolutionarily, that's a shortcut, you know, or a heuristic or a rule of thumb that, that we grew up with. When we see, see two things happen at the same time, we think that one caused the other or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a shortcut that has got us a long way evolutionarily. Yeah. But when you, when you start studying things that, um, well, the, the classic example in medicine or in surgery is that in conditions where people would improve anyway, once you start doing things to them, you start to think that what you did made them better um, because it's a compelling argument. It's like, well, I did this thing and, and sometime later they say they feel better. I'm going to keep doing it, you know, <laughs> Uh, I'm on a roll here, you know, like, yeah. why, would I stop, why would I stop doing the operation if my patients say they feel better? Um, and you've got to ask the question, what would they say if you didn't do the operation? Would they still have gotten better anyway? And it's only when you think in that sort of counterfactual way of thinking that you can really start to determine what caused the improvement. Yeah. Did it get better because there was just naturally would have, the course of the disease or whatever would have wrapped up. Um, so then I guess talk a little bit about in the, in the very beginning of the book, you talk about what is a placebo and then what is a placebo effect versus a specific effect. So kind of break that down for us. It's, yeah, it's very, it's very confusing. And I, I get wrapped around the axle of this all the time when I'm trying to explain it with people, but um because um, by definition, placebos have no effect. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a lot of talk about the placebo effect uh, of surgery and how it should have a very strong placebo effect. And that's one of the arguments I make in the, in, in the book. Um, and there's some research being done at the moment um, looking into what is the placebo effect of surgery, like, like what proportion of the improvement is due to a placebo effect. Um, and a lot of people have said, you know, it's a third or it's whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm veering away from that a little bit because there's confusion between a, a placebo effect and what would have happened to the patient anyway and, and confounding and other reasons for, for their improvement. And that's by far the biggest thing. So for, for a lot of what we do, yeah, there's probably a placebo effect. The placebo effects are probably overrated and they're short-lived. The fact that the patient is still really happy a year after the operation is probably because they would have been anyway. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with the placebo effect. So I'm spending less time now, uh, although we're still studying it, and I'm doing placebo studies because they're the best way of measuring the true effect of something because you've got to blind the patient from their expectations. Um, so we still need to get rid of that placebo effect, whatever it is when we're doing scientific studies. Um, but certainly it's not as big as people think it is. And, and for the surgeons out there who say, um, well, you know, I don't care if it's a placebo effect, as long as it's making people better, I'll keep doing it. And, and that's a bad way of thinking because the surgery is not making them better. The placebo effect is not nearly as big as you think it is. And all, all of the improvement that you're attributing to the placebo effect is probably largely due to natural history or, or concomitant treatment or, uh, or other things. 
Yeah, that's a big, you know, in the in the PTOT chiropractic world too, they they talk about that too. Like, oh, well, even if it is having a placebo effect, the patient feels better. And what you're saying yeah, is that, I, well, even even the placebo effect might not be the effect that's long lasting, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have big problems with that attitude though. It's like, you know, I've even had surgeons say to me, um, you know, I don't care if it's a placebo effect, even if it is, I'm going to keep doing it because it works. Yeah, there's a big, there's lots of problems with that, you know, philosophically, isn't there? It's, it's, um, then you are definitely deceiving, either if you believe it, you're deceiving yourself, or if you don't believe it, you're deceiving the patient. You have to deceive them to get the effect. Um, you're, you're also removing really what is the only barrier between mainstream healthcare and alternatives to that. Uh, you know, alternative medicine or whatever, which which um, uses the placebo effect. I use homeopathy often as the example of of, of literally giving nothing. You know, giving yeah. no treatment, um, and and expecting people to get better and believing that when they got better, it was due to the water that you gave them that had no active ingredients in it, um, and. Uh, um, the thing I say to the, to the surgeons is that homeopathists don't wake up in the morning thinking they're going to go and swindle, uh, you know, or rip off uh, 50 patients today by selling them fake water or something. They believe it works. You know, they believe it works because their patients get better. If you embrace the placebo effect and that's the only thing you're relying on, then then you've got to be a champion for homeopathy. You know, you've got to be, you basically just remove the barrier between non-scientific medicine and scientific medicine. Um, and that's really the only difference uh, between mainstream and alternative medicine. And it's, it's out the window if we start doing things like that. Yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit then about scientific medicine. In the book, you talk a lot about randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trials. Um, so talk a little bit for maybe for somebody that's um, listening that isn't a clinician or is trying to navigate these waters, like how do we how do we make the determination of what is good science and what is bad science? Yeah. Well, that's a whole lecture in itself, yeah. but I could probably <laughs> sum it up a little bit. Um, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of science. People say, oh, studies are terrible and it's, and and uh, people like to pick flaws in studies. They go, oh, that randomized trial is terrible because... Uh, you know, not all the patients got followed up or they, they did something different or, or, or whatever. You could pick holes in any study. Um, but what happens is people criticise the scientific research and then conclude that the opposite is true, which doesn't make yeah. any sense yeah. at all. You know, it's like this study uh, showed that surgery was not effective, Okay. I can find a little four in that study. So maybe, you know, there's question marks over the study. You know, often that's not the case, but maybe there is. So I'm going to firmly conclude the opposite of what that concluded. It's, there's no yeah. evidence for that <laughs> whatsoever, you know, and yet that's what they believe. Um, so I, I often say of, of the scientific method is that it's the, it's the worst way of knowing things except for all the other ways. It's exactly, paraphrasing yeah. uh, uh, Winston Churchill when he said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. 
Um, so it's it's the best thing we've got. And people get confused about science and they think it's all, you know, a little bit ethereal. It's, it's kind of separate. What science is, is just a systematic method to reduce error. That's all yeah, it is. Like that. And it, it never actually tells you what the truth is. It can give you confidence limits and, and, and estimates and things like that. Um, but it's fairly reliable and it's a fairly good tool to estimate the effectiveness of something of, of say an operation or, or, or a treatment. Um, and it does it by reducing the amount of wrongness in the method. Uh -huh. It takes out all these things that can make your method wrong, you know, um, biases, confounding, uh, the fact that these groups aren't equal, one group that you treated is older than the other group that you didn't treat, so that's not fair, you know, all these sort of unfair, uh, biased comparisons. Uh, science is a way of minimising all of that so that the answer you get is as close to the truth as, yeah, as, possible. as you can get. Um, so that's all science is, you know, it's not that hard. And so when we do trials of, of surgery, preferably we want... To, um, the people doing the follow-up um, to be blinded as to what treatment the patient got. Um, preferably, we'd like the patients to be blinded as to what treatment they got, and it's sometimes very difficult to do. Um, and, but we certainly want them treated the same way in every other aspect, except for the treatment that we're studying. So we yeah. have a fair comparison. And that drills down to like that specific effect. So if everything else is the same and there is a change, you can more or less attribute that to what you did. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the randomization is, is by far the best way of doing it. There's other ways of doing it as well. Um, and there's lots of great research being done on, on causal inference now on how we can tell whether A caused B or not. Um, but but randomization is the best way of yeah. doing that. Okay. And what would you say? I think you, you tackle this in the book a little bit too. What do you say to people who who make the argument on an ethical basis, especially for something like surgery, like, oh, we can't do a study using you know placebo surgery because you're taking a patient, you're giving them the risk without the you yeah. know quote unquote yeah, benefit. Yeah. So that's a that's a very commonly raised argument. Um Less so lately, um, but still a lot of people believe that. It, there's, a, there's a few answers to that. Um, first of all, uh, the argument that we should not expose patients to risk without a chance of benefit is the ethics of clinical practice. So when we are operating as healthcare providers... We should not be exposing patients to risk unless there's also a, a chance that they can benefit. And it's all about balancing that risk-benefit ratio when you're yeah. treating people. And if the benefit is zero and there's a risk, you shouldn't do it. So ethically, that argument is correct. But that's the ethics of clinical practice. The ethics of research is that some risk is acceptable if overall... So it doesn't go to the individual. It goes to the population. It goes to society at large um, if that risk is justified and if the patients are consented and understand there's a risk. 
And you say, oh, it was surgery, you know, it's dangerous. Surgery is less dangerous if you do a placebo than if you do the real surgery. Yeah. So the, the studies of placebo surgery have shown that placebo surgery is less risky than the real surgery. And if we don't know if the real surgery works, this is the best way to, to uh, test it. Um, and so the example I give to look at the ethics for society is um, I take spinal fusion as an example. Spinal fusion for back pain, I think, is probably not a good operation. We don't know. It's never been tested in a placebo study. Currently, we have um, probably millions of people having a spinal fusion every year. At least hundreds and hundreds of thousands of those are being done for back pain, right? So that's what's happening now. We don't know if it works. We know that that's an incredibly expensive, invasive and risky and harmful procedure. And we yeah. don't know if it benefits people. So we have an alternative. And let's look at the ethics of these two alternatives. Alternative one is we do a placebo study. Alternative two is we carry on without it. Now, if we do a placebo study, we have to take, say, 200 patients. We have to randomise 100 of them to have a, a spinal fusion and 100 of them to have a pretend spinal fusion, to have a placebo operation. And then so 100 people will be exposed to risk without harm, uh, exposed to yeah, risk without benefit. Yeah. Um, and, and then we'd follow those 200 people. And if the patients were blinded and we had you know, a very high quality study, we would be able to tell whether this operation actually helped people or not once and for all. And then we would know whether we need to keep doing it. If we show that it's not effective, we can prevent millions, millions of people yeah. in the future from having this unnecessary procedure for the sake of 100 people having a placebo. So, that, so what's the ethics of that compared to the ethics of not doing that study and continuing to operate on people indefinitely? Yeah, exactly. So, You're talking in the, in the big picture, it makes total sense when you're talking about one individual patient, it can be you know, a little hairy. The, right? the ethics of research looks at, looks at the benefits and harms to society. The ethics, yeah. of, ethics of clinical practice looks at the benefits and harms of an individual that's sitting in front of you. That's the difference. So people who make that argument apply the ethics of clinical practice to the ethics of research. And that's not appropriate. Yeah. All right. Well, Let's talk about, in the book, you mentioned there, there are several reasons why clinicians in general might be continuing to do a surgery or a procedure or an intervention that either science has shown to be ineffective or at least if there's question about whether or not we should continue doing it. Um, and one of those that I thought was fascinating was the, the idea of that we have a desire to treat versus not treat. So talk about yeah. that for a little bit, especially as a as an orthopedic surgeon, someone comes to you and they're in extreme pain, you know, making that decision. Yeah. Okay, um, we're going to treat it without surgery. This is this is very powerful. Um, it's it, the incentives in the health system drive interventions. Patients want to be treated. Patients, friends, and relatives want them to be treated because they they just want to be seen to be helping them and doing something and they're going you should get that operation done you know you've been complaining about this for ages you know just go ahead and and get it done the surgeon doesn't want to feel um incapable or incompetent or not able to help um so they're kind of like well yeah what the hell you know 
uh, you know, let's just do it, you know, because I think it'd be great if you got better and, and I did that operation. Uh, everyone would be happy, you know. Everyone wins, you know. The hospital wants the surgeon to do it because that's how the hospital makes money. The whole system, even the insurance companies who, who don't like to pay out for things live on turnover. The insurance companies just live on turnover. They're, you know, okay, if we do more operations, we raise premiums. It's just, it's yeah. a, that's just a mathematical thing. Um, so the whole business, you know, the, the reusables, the device industry, everything lives on turnover. Um, but it's very difficult. And I have these arguments with surgeons about uh, arthroscopy, and it's funny the things they come up with. Um, and uh, when I say to them, you know, the, the operation doesn't work, and, and they say to me, well, if arthroscopy doesn't work, what are we supposed to do? We'll just be doing knee replacements on everyone instead of an arthroscopy. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of like, no, no, you cannot do an operation. And oh, they're kind gasp. of like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess. You know, I didn't think of that, you know. <laughs> so, and uh, I just did a, a seminar in uh, South Korea by video conference that ended up. Um, and it was on this thing about, you know, arthroscopy, because apparently South Korea has one of the highest rates of knee arthroscopy in the world. It's, it's oh, higher yeah. than America. It's just off the charts. And I didn't know this. And, and I was, they, so they did this television program and they interviewed me and they're saying, um, and they interviewed some, some high level orthopedic surgeons in South Korea. And, uh, and they said, um, yes, but you know, uh, you know, we know the evidence shows that it isn't effective. Um, but, but what if the patient's in a lot of pain, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and I said, that, that doesn't make the operation effective. You know, they, <laughs> and they kept raising this point and uh, it's the same argument I get. Um, one of the first talks I gave, I remember I was really scared when I gave this talk. This was years ago. And I, and I gave a talk to an Australian Orthopedic Association, big meeting with all the, the surgeons there. And I was a lot younger. And I got up and said, I don't think this operation works. Here's the evidence. You know, we, we, we're doing this a lot where it just, just, isn't, just doesn't work, you know, for arthritis. And this elder surgeon got up. And uh, I found out later he was the head, the president of the knee society. You know, he was like yeah. a big name and he looked very smug and he looked around at all his friends in the audience. And he said, um, you know, you say that that surgery is not better than non-operative treatment and they should have non-operative treatment. But what you fail to realize is that these patients have already failed non-operative treatment and therefore they should have operative treatment. And on the surface, that's a very appealing kind of bit of rhetoric, isn't it? It's kind of like, well, they've failed non-operative treatment, so I guess they need operative treatment. It's very hard to argue with that. But then I thought, well, hang on a minute. I said, no. I said, we have an operation that, that here that is not effective. The fact that other treatments haven't been effective either yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make, make this it one right. <laughs> it still is not effective, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, and That's, how much of that that desire to treat too is is pushed by maybe patient you like you mentioned it patient expectations or patient desire patients coming and saying you need to make me better. Yeah, yeah, and and the other excuse doctors often use is they say that oh well the patient wanted the operation that is complete rubbish you know I I, I get this all the time it's just it's one of these little you know how you can push people's buttons. That's, that's one of my <laughs> buttons that, that gets pushed. And when I'm sitting in an x-ray meeting and we're, we're reviewing the x-rays and I said, what'd you do that operation for? It's like, that's completely unnecessary. And they said, well, the patient wanted it. 
yeah, that's rubbish, you know. And and because I see patients all the time with with degenerative knee conditions, and they come in thinking they need an arthroscopy, and I say, no, no, you don't need an arthroscopy because it doesn't work. It won't actually make you any better. It's no better than placebo. And then they're kind of like, oh, well, in that case, I don't want it. Like what, you know. I'm not an idiot. Why would I want an operation <laughs> that doesn't work? You know, it's it's not that hard to explain to patients that this operation is not effective. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't buy that argument that the patient wanted it, therefore I had to do it. Yeah. Do you find like I know in in some of the outpatient rehab world, there's in physiotherapy world, there's almost this this idea like having that conversation with a patient is difficult. And obviously we're not dealing with scalpels and anesthesia. So it's much easier just to placate the patient and give them a treatment. I'd imagine yeah. though, I mean, the same ethical lines are the same. So as a surgeon, as a, as a clinician in general, it's your responsibility to lead the patient engagement, right? To, to make sure that, they, that you're guiding the patient to what is the appropriate treatment as opposed to letting them kind of run the show. Yeah. And it is easy just to, just to, to do it um but it, it comes to you know it what's your job you know your job's to educate the patient and and make them better without them paying a fortune unnecessarily and and things but yeah the desire to treat me just made me think of another story um i had a doctor visit from uh from um china and i've since heard this from from other people and this guy was an orthopedic surgeon he came and visited us for about a month and um went to the operating rooms with us and he went to the clinic and the whole time he was just like scratching his head. You know, he was, he was just amazed. And this is a fracture clinic that I run. I just see patients that have had fractures and we change their plaster or we take the plaster off or we take their stitches out if they've had a plate put in or whatever. It's all pretty routine stuff. You know, there's, we just, how are you going? Yeah, good. We check their x-rays, everything's fine, you know? And so we did this big clinic and, and, you know, saw a couple of dozen patients and it was all very routine stuff. And this guy was just amazed. And I said, what's like, what are you amazed at? And he said, why didn't, why didn't you give them any prescriptions? You didn't give them any medications. And I said, well, what medications would you want me to give them? I said, they're all post-op, you know, they're all walking around, you know, I, I don't need anything. And he said, the patients in China in the clinic, they're not happy unless they leave that clinic with a bag full of medications. You know, oh, you've wow. got to give them so many prescriptions, otherwise they won't be happy and they think you're a bad doctor and they won't come back. And I said, that's amazing, you know, but that's just a cultural thing. That's something that they've, you know, that has that evolved in the culture. Um, and it's a very interesting history over there as well. In order to incentivize treatments, this is way back uh, in China, they paid doctors per prescription. Oh, wow. And so the doctors learned that, well, I'm just going to write prescriptions until my hand falls off. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> like, this, is, this is money for nothing. And uh, so that's how they got paid was writing prescriptions. So everybody thought that you needed lots of drugs to be treated. Uh, and, of course, that led to overtreatment and uh, things like that. But, yeah, it, it is easy just to do what the patient wants sometimes, I think, when, you know, particularly in the physio world. Like, what am I here for? You know, exactly. I'm not here for you to talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. It must be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so then I guess at, at what point, and you've kind of mentioned this, like your job is to educate a patient. Like, at, at what can we do about that 
societal expectation or even the at a population level like this just expectation that you go to a surgeon you get a you get a surgery you go to a physiotherapy you get manipulated or, or whatever it is like is that is there a, a greater role for clinicians or for academic institutions to to educate the public and how do we go about doing that well the, the first thing you do is write a book about it <laughs> <laughs> check um, but a, a lot of uh, it's in the surgery world um, there's a bit of interest, not as much as there should be, on uh, patient education tools, uh, patient decision aids, um, spelling out the risks of the surgery, spelling out the likely benefits. And often when that's done, patients are much less likely to want to have surgery. Um, but I think it, it, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it comes down to the therapist-patient interaction and your mm -hmm. ability to be able to uh, gain trust, um, have a, uh, you know, a, a good communication style and be able to um, get this message across to them that, um, gee, you know, a lot of uh, physios will overtreat and they do, you know, I, I know this, everyone overtreats a little bit. And when we know the physio, they'll just keep you coming back you know, every yeah. week for six months, um, just doing pretty much nothing for you. Um, and, and that's not the best way to treat you. And for most patients, the best way is for, for them to get better themselves, you know, to, to build resilience, coping, um, you know, strength and the ability to, to withstand and, and cope with uh, difficulties is the best way for patients to be treated not just to sit back and have somebody else do something to them they're better off doing it themselves and unfortunately that's the kind of not just the kind of health system it's a little bit the kind of society that we have as well it's kind of like well you know i've got a headache this is your problem now just exactly know, you're, yeah you're, you're the therapist just sort it out for me um, <laughs> yeah yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned that we had a uh, Bronnie Thompson from University of Otago come on the show a few weeks back, and she was talking. We were talking about chronic pain and how you treat that, and it all came back to that too, like self management versus you know active yeah. treatments versus passive treatments, and this idea that patients they do better in the long run when they learn to manage it on their own versus having somebody yeah, do something to the them. Pills every month and you know doubling morphine dose or something that's. Yeah, that's the old way of treating people. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, um, I'm trying to look through here. There's there's a quote from your book that I really really liked, and we kind of talked about it a little bit here. But it, you you say in the book there's a there's a saying in surgery that any surgeon can operate. A good surgeon knows when to operate, but the best surgeons know when not to operate. And in the book, you actually talk about certain conditions that you've you've been treating successfully without operation like uh, achilles tendon was one of them right yeah well, achilles tendon is a classic um in my early days uh we treated them all surgically um these days i treat almost none of them surgically so that's that's been a big change over 20 plus years of practice um and again, it's typical of something that we were doing because that's just what we did and it made sense and the people got better. And that's what we'd always done. 
um, which you know goes to the example I used in the start of the book of bloodletting. Yeah. Um, and and venous section that was used by doctors for two thousand years because they just thought that it it worked. Um, but I had lots of uh, you know when I look back, I had lots of uh, um, problems that could have been avoided because it's not an operation without risk. Yeah. Um, only time um, I have ever been sued as a surgeon. And I actually wasn't sued. The hospital was sued because the system we have here is it was a public patient. So they sue the hospital, so, yeah. not, the, not the doctor, but it was my patient. Um, was an Achilles tendon repair uh, that, that got infected. Um, you know, the infection went away, and but the patient still sued. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's not uncommon, and I've seen cases where patients who have had an Achilles tendon repair, because they're immobilized, they're put in plaster afterwards, they're, they're given an anesthetic, mm -hmm. uh, they're immobilized uh, to have a pulmonary embolus, uh, have a clot oh, wow, yeah. from the calf and, and die suddenly from that. This is something that's, that's not benign. Um, it can cause infections, it can cause scarring issues, it can cause nerve irritation, it can cause clots in the calf, and it can cause pulmonary emboli and death. So that's the, that's the risks of surgery. The best evidence we have today is that surgery does not provide any benefit over non-operative treatment. So I, I treat them all non-operatively. Yeah, but a lot of things I used to do, I, I don't do now. Yeah. Like infusions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned that in the book too. Like um, it was interesting to me that you talked about, well, it didn't matter if you, you went from the front or you went from the side or you went from the back, all of the outcomes were the same, which means <laughs> like one would stand yeah. to reason that it, it can't be the surgery that's getting them better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter if it fuses or not. So when you do yeah. a spine fuse, if the fusion doesn't take, it doesn't seem to matter. It, I mean, to me that like, an alarm bells going off, like yeah. isn't there? You know, is it, is it maybe the operation is not doing anything here? And and what really disappoints me is that there's many spine journals. They're all full of research about spine fusion, but it's all about whether you should do it from the front or the back, or the front <laughs> and the back, or the side, or laparoscopically, or open, or whether you should use uh, robotics, or whether you should use it. You know, whether you should use rods cages, plates, uh, you know, what, what tools should you use? How many levels should you fuse? Nobody's doing the study of whether you should do a fusion or not. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we just, just recently published a, an article in um, the journal Pain where we looked at the evidence for um, surgery in, in chronic pain, musculoskeletal pain. And less than 1% of the randomized controlled trials that have been done in this area have compared doing the operation to not doing the operation. Oh, holy cow. So 99% of the research is just looking at how we should do it, not whether we should do it. Yeah. Well, and that makes it difficult for clinicians to make a decision, right? Like if all the evidence you have yeah. is one way, yeah. you know, doesn't even consider yeah. this other option. So how do clinicians yeah. weigh or wade through that when they're trying to, to decide what's, what might be best for their patient? There's even a pessimistic argument that doesn't matter because in the same review, we looked at all the, all the most common conditions that undergo surgery, everything from like, you know, carpal tunnel, you know, back pain, shoulder conditions, the usual kinds of things. 
and we found that in um, most of the nearly all of the conditions where trials have been done um, the, on balance they show that the surgery doesn't work yeah so even when the evidence is there people don't change their practice uh, it's a very very bleak paper but yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you look up my name and pain journal 2020 uh, it's just pain is the name of the journal p-a-i-n um yeah it's a it's a bit of an eye-opener i think yeah well and that kind of speaks to this idea of like knowledge translation in general like uh, papers put it everywhere but uh, you know the, the figure ranges from it takes somewhere between 10 and 17 years for you know, something that's found in research to be made into daily practice. You need fairly overwhelming research. Uh, the one example we do have from recent times is that neoarthroscopy rates are falling. They're falling quite dramatically. So we've shown a very large fall in Australia and in my state in particular. Um, and that fall started around 2011 mm-hmm. and it's been fairly consistent since. So it, um, it's still on the decline. But when you look at how the evidence accumulated it accumulated for a good 10 years uh before that a lot of studies you know systematic and then for more studies in the 2010s systematic reviews major papers news articles that really got a lot of attention over the next 10 years and that's what it took to shift practice um a single trial isn't going to do it you need a lot of evidence um, to change people's minds. People get very fixed in their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know that, you know, whether it's yeah. whatever religion you're into or whatever, you know, sports team, you back, or something, you just get so, you know, this is the truth and there isn't anything else. I'm not really listening to anything else outside it. Um, yeah. And that's what it is yeah. to be scientific. And that's what I encourage people to do is to, Avoid dogma. Be question your own practice. Be open to to alternatives. Listen to opponents. Um, yeah, I, I sometimes sound very very dogmatic myself. You know, I'm saying surgery doesn't work. Surgery doesn't work. And even this was the weird thing um, in the interview that the thing I did with Korea just the other week. It was so weird because it took me a few minutes into the interview when I realized that these surgeons were arguing with me and, and, uh, and they were giving examples of operations they've done that have worked. And I'm like, why are you giving me like single examples of people you've operated on who felt better afterwards? And then I realized that they thought that I was saying that all surgery is ineffective. Yeah. Surgery across the board doesn't work. And so I had to kind of correct them. I said, no, no, I, like I'm a surgeon, you know, I just did an yeah, operation. I do these things. <laughs> I, 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 I operate on people, you know, uh, because so they're arguing, they're saying, oh, we think surgery is really good for patients with hip fractures, you know, because we can fix the fracture and get them walking again, you know. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not arguing with that. You know, I just did three of those operations this morning. You know, it's not, that's not the problem. Um, um, you know, so I'm more than open to, to to the argument that operations may work even when we don't know. I think my point is that the default position is that it works, and that exactly. shouldn't be the case. 
if you have a new procedure and you think it's really great, the default position should be, well, it doesn't work until you prove it does. Because what we have now is that this is a great operation. I'm telling my buddies about it. They start doing it. It spreads. It becomes a common operation. Ten years later, someone comes along and does a randomized control trial and find it, finds out it doesn't work. You know, that's the complete wrong way of, of doing things. Um, and even to the point, of that, and that kind of attitude of, of, of um, you know, challenging people a little bit and, and saying that that should be our default has helped me a little bit in arguments. And I was giving a talk, uh, sorry, just to keep spinning off on stories all the time. Oh, no, we like it. <laughs> a, a talk on um, uh, an upper limb uh, meeting and we, we talked about tennis elbow, uh, which is an operation that used to be treated with surgery. I don't think it, yes. many people operate on it now because although people do, the surgery is completely ineffective. Like it's just, we know it's ineffective. I had tennis elbow. I actually went into a placebo study myself where they injected me with, with something I still don't know what it was. But <laughs> 97 or 98% of tennis elbow cases will get better within 12 months. You know, that's, that's the natural history of tennis elbow. You don't live with it your whole life. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you have it and then you had it. Um, and this guy said, said, no, no, he said, surgery is really good. He said, all those other operations are no good. I've developed an operation which is really good and it works, you know, 100% of the time. All the patients I do this operation to work better, you know, what I do is this, I release this tendon and then I do this and, and everyone else has got it wrong and, I, and you know, and the operation's really effective. And so I made him think about what he said. And I didn't say, no, you're just talking rubbish. You know, or you, you need to do a placebo trial. I don't think I did say that. But <laughs> I, I said, okay, so what you're saying is that you've found the cure for tennis elbow. Well, all the other surgeons in, in history have not been able to do it. All of the studies we've done so far have shown the surgery doesn't work. But you've got, an opera you've got the operation that, that works. Isn't it your responsibility to, to do a study now to prove that it works? And then all the people in the world of tennis elbow can benefit from this because you just standing up saying you've got the answer and no one else knows isn't going to help everybody. You've got exactly, to prove that yeah. it works. And, and, you know, and then I got into entertain the possibility of what would have happened to your patients had you not operated on them. It's this this counterfactual thinking. Um, and the other example I, I give in the book, which I use in my lectures, which I only added to the book at the last minute uh, in the introduction was about water divining. I don't know if that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. over there. In Australia, it's a big thing. It's a dry country. And, and in the rural properties, you pay people to come out and they walk around your property with dowsing sticks and they, mm -hmm. and they tell you where to dig to find water. And these people get paid a lot for this and they find water and, and it works every time. Um, and, and, uh, and it's a really important part of my personal history was when I was at first year university, I watched a documentary on television where the great James Randi, the, the Mythbuster guy, came out to Australia, challenged these water diviners over an experimental situation to, to find where the water was. And of course, they completely failed. They had no idea. It was just random what they were guessing. And, and prove to me, not to them, but prove to me that water divining didn't work. The water diviners still believed it, of course. Yeah. And the reason why they believed it is because they'd always found water 
right? And then they show this map of Australia. And in the map of Australia, it's got the aquifers. You know, if you drill anywhere in Australia, you'll find water. <laughs> you just have to go deep enough, and right? So, so these guys, so James Randi said, okay, you guys are no good. You're no better than chance. And these guys are all saying, no, no, it's crazy. We know it works. My, my father was a water diviner. I'm a water diviner. We find water, you know, nearly 100% of the time. It works so well. And then James Randi did this thing, which just completely blew my mind. And he said to them, he said, you know, what would be good is if we got you out onto a property and we got you to tell us where to dig, where we will not find water. And it's kind of like, because they wouldn't be able to do it. Because yeah. anywhere you dig finds water. So they, they didn't embrace the counterfactual. They knew that when they did their job, they found water. They always found water and they always will. But it had nothing to do with them. Exactly. Because anybody yeah. would have found water anywhere. And if they were being asked to find where to, to dig to where they wouldn't find water, they, they wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good example. And surgeons are finding water. Surgeons are, uh, you know, they have patients who are happy. Even sometimes when they're not better, the patients say they're happy. Um, and that's the other example I give is with knee replacement, look, which is a good operation, but it's maybe not as good as we think it is. And if I've got physios in the audience, they'll appreciate this. Um, and I say to people, uh, next time you're at a dinner party, uh, if you're sitting next to an orthopedic surgeon, just ask them how good, you know, how good are knee replacements? And I go, oh, they're fantastic. You know, it's like a 98% success rate. You know, the, the revision rate's really low. You know, the prostheses are fantastic. It's, it's this one of the best operations we do. And next time you're at a dinner, dinner party or a, a party and you're next to a physiotherapist, ask them how good knee replacements are because they're going to give you a different answer. <laughs> because the surgeon, the, the patient goes to the surgeon, you know, how are you doing? Oh, your x-rays are good. Your wound's clean. You know, you're healing up really well. Everything's looking good. How are you feeling? Yeah, okay, I think I'm doing okay. Yeah, good. You know, you'll get there. Don't worry. Everything's great. The surgeon thinks it's fantastic. And then they go to their physio and they go, my knee's stiff, you know, exactly. it's sore. Okay. You got to stretch me, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really unhappy with it. When's it going to get better? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, surgeons, and we actually did a study where we interviewed surgeons and we asked them and their patients how successful do you think the operation was? And um, surgeons way overestimated the, how the good the patient was yeah. going compared to the patient. When we asked the, the exact same patient, how good are you going? We got a completely different answer. And people laugh at that and they go, yeah, yeah, surgeons overestimate what they do. Problem is, when it comes to the decision-making, when a new patient turns up to the office and they've got knee osteoarthritis and the surgeon's tossing up whether they should have an operation or not, the surgeon is using their belief, mm -hmm. which is a way overestimated belief of, of overestimating the benefits and underestimating the harms of what they do. They're using that in the calculus to decide whether to recommend that patient surgery or not. They're not using the reality. Yeah. Um, well, I think you mentioned that in the book too, like clinicians on the balance aren't out there trying to do harm. They legitimately think that what they're, what they have to offer is working, right? The, the, the surgeons are, are they're water diviners, they're homeopaths, they're, they're, they're the same kind of, they're human beings that are out there thinking that they are doing good. You know, so in, and the question I always get in lectures is, uh, Oh, you didn't mention money. You know, surgeons are always doing it for the money. 
you know, maybe subconsciously, I think that's one of the drivers, but surgeons aren't waking up in the morning just thinking I'm going to do an operation that doesn't work just so I can make money. Yeah. They've got another, they've got enough operations that do work. They don't need to do that. Um, they, they honestly believe it works. That's why they're out there. Yeah. Well, Dr. Harris, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk with us about this book and, and just the idea of, of you know, clinical decision-making and, and picking the right treatment. If there's one or two big takeaways that you'd have for the listener, what would they be? Yeah, be scientific. I think for the clinicians out there, you know, question what you do question what you believe, look for the evidence for it and, and consider that it doesn't work. And in that light, look at the evidence. For the patients out there, um, I often say to them, just ask your carer one question. What is the probability I will get better with this treatment? Or what is the probability I'll get better without it? Yeah. It's a very simple question, but often people don't People overlook that. it, yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well, uh, Dr. Harris, where can people find out about you, about your work? I know you mentioned you're, you're publishing that article in pain. Where else can we find Yeah, that? look, you can Google me. I've got a lot of publications out there. Um, it's, easier if, it's easier if you look um, under Ian A. Harris, the middle initial okay. A, because there's Ian Harris is out there. Um, yeah, you can Google me. You can find me pretty easily. Uh, you can find my publications. But the book, I think, you know, I, I actually very rare. I don't go tell people to buy the book. But um, I, I think the book is a really good introduction to this topic of, of, of the science of medicine. It's, it's not all about placebo. It's about how we should be thinking about how things are effective. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, like, I, I think I mentioned this to you maybe before, but I, I just love the book. And I think that it is, it did click a lot of things for me too, like thinking about why we're making decisions. So it's, it's much bigger than just placebo, not placebo. It's really is like clinical decision-making 101, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Well, thank you very much for the time, sir. I hope you have a good uh, rest of your week. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Ian Harris talking about his book, Surgery, The Ultimate Placebo. You know, in listening to the interview again and kind of just refreshing my memory on, on what we talked about, the topics of the book, it really highlighted to me the what I have always said to, to students that have come through the clinics that I've been a clinician at or students that have come through the program that I, I used to teach at and even other organizations and clients that I work with through my consulting and advisory work. And that is the idea that what we bring to the table as clinicians is not our technical skills. I think I, I feel like I beat this drum a little bit, but it, it bears repeating, especially in light of the conversation we just listened with, with Dr. Ian Harris. Our skills are important, yes, but that's not truly the value that we bring to the table. What we bring to the table as clinicians, as trained, educated, knowledgeable clinicians, is the ability to make clinical decisions, our clinical reasoning, if you would, our ability to take a look at the patient's unique context, their unique situation, especially if you're taking a biopsychosocial approach, in conjunction with the available evidence, the available treatment options that are out there, 
even if you're going to talk, you know, even pragmatic reasoning and what, what is even possible or appropriate for this patient. And we're able to kind of combine all of that, put it all into the, into the computer houses of our brain, if you would, and help guide decisions that will ultimately impact the lives of our patients. So it's not whether or not we can do a manipulation, whether we can do this um, joint mobilization or this soft tissue mobilization, or even in this case, a surgery or something like that to make a patient feel better. The value we bring as clinicians is our ability to look at all the evidence, all the available options, and sit down with a patient, understanding their own unique situation and help them chart a path to healing, if you would, or help them develop a treatment plan that fits within their, their, their lifestyle, their situation, their social context, their environmental context, in a way that's truly going to achieve the outcomes that we want, both for ourselves and our patients. And I think that piece gets overlooked a lot, especially if you're a clinician that's running in a, in a big healthcare organization or maybe even a, just a very busy, privately held outpatient clinic and you're seeing a lot of patients and it's getting busy and you're, you've, you're dealing with a lot of patients that maybe even have the same, exact, um, the same exact diagnoses or symptoms or something like that, it gets very easy to fall into a rut of um, you know, plugging things into the equation, following a protocol, this, that, and the other. And when we do that, we really are taking off the table, if you would, the value that we bring. Because again, the value that we bring is our clinical knowledge, our clinical reasoning. So that's all I've got to say on that. Anyways, if you like the show, it would mean a lot if you went to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. It helps people find the show. It helps people uh, hear the message that we're trying to spread here at the Better Outcomes Show, which is really just that uh, the focus of healthcare should be on individual patients. So with that being said, uh, I will talk to you in a couple weeks. We're going to do another interview with uh, Dr. Larry Benz, who wrote Called to Care, which is a great, great book that I highly recommend. Uh, so look for that interview dropping in a couple weeks. Until the next time, guys, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.